Don't you sometimes just wish they would just like follow you around, just sing you into the room everywhere you go? I appreciate you guys so much, man. Um, so perfect. Um, hey, lesson five. Some of you are like, wait, what? Yeah, we, we, yeah, we met. Lesson four, go back. Check it out. Um, you can check that out if you haven't had a chance to. Lots of interesting things last week. Um, fun things to talk about. Um, last week, let me recap. Let's recap, shall we? Because it's been a minute. Let's do that. Recapping. Our author, King Solomon, right? Why is this man who ever lived? Richest man who ever lived. All the things, right? We know this, that he is looking back on this great experience, ex- great experiment that he is, has experimented with all these different areas of life to try to find meaning. And he is later in life and he is looking back and he's telling us that story, right? In chapter one, we see that he experimented and talked about how he was just so wise and had all this wisdom, right? And so he was trying to find meaning through his wisdom. And he came to this conclusion, right? That it was all hevel, hevel, you know? It's, Ecclesiastes 2, I I wrote a little thing. I'm not a poet, but I feel like this could be something special. You ready? In in Ecclesiastes 2, um, we learned that he had another experiment, and he experimented this way. He did this. We, We learned a lot about it, that if it was available, he smoked it, he guzzled it, he shot it, he bought it, he owned it, he built it, he wrote it, he sang it, he told it, he accumulated it, he used it, and he exploited it, didn't he? He did all the things to the nth degree in an effort to try to understand meaning of life. Well, Solomon used that great laboratory of life as an experiment to search for a satisfying meaning of life under the sun. And so today, he's gonna shift the focus to something familiar to all of us. He's gonna talk about the tension of time, the tension of time and how we navigate time in light of a God who controls all of it, right? So Ecclesiastes 3, here's what we're going to do. Okay, so we are going to go over one of the most recognizable passages in the whole Bible. Oh, definitely the Old Testament, right? I mean, it's a song for heaven's sakes, and you probably hear it all the time. Did you hear it a lot this week? Like, whenever we get to this section in Ecclesiastes, I'm like, it's so funny how you hear it echoed in all these different areas of life, in song, in, in, in just everywhere. Well, we're going to try our very best to like approach it from a fresh perspective, okay? Look at it a little differently. Um, and so here's how we're going to roll through it. I do not have slides this week, so here's your entertainment. Uh, we're going to do three things, okay? First, we're going to do, we're going to look at what, we're going to observe and see what we observe from the passage, okay? We're going to look at some technical parts of this passage, this poetic um, masterpiece, if you will. We're going to ask ourselves, what does it actually say? We're going to go through um, those seven couplets, those 14 lines of things that he tells us about, a time to this and a time to that, okay? We're going to go through that. And then lastly, we're going to ask ourselves this, like, okay, we, we observed some things, we saw what it said, but now what are we going to do with that? Like, how can we learn from that and leave here today with something from what Solomon is showing us in Ecclesiastes 3? So if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 together, okay? First thing we're going to do is look at what do we observe, okay? So I'm going to read... Um, Well, let me do this. Verses one through eight, that's the section where it's the poetic stuff. So let me read it one time, just in one big chunk, and then I want you to to listen to a couple of things that we can observe from that, okay? So read along with me if you have your Bible. 
verse one, chapter three, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You've read it a couple of times this week, right? All of it just seems very familiar at this point. And here's something we need to understand. You're gonna see, I mentioned it's like considered this poetic masterpiece, it is. And we could get super technical about some of the things. I'm gonna just overview some of the things. I want you to look at just what we observe. Okay, forget the meaning for just a hot minute. Look at what we observe, okay? Couple things I want you to see. There are seven poetic couplets, okay? And, and what that means really is there's 14 juxtaposing pairs, okay? So, you know, a time for everything, there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven. Then verse two, you see a couplet, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. That's a couplet. But what's interesting about the word juxtapose, do you know what that means? I, I thought I knew what it meant, and then I went and, and I looked it up because it's just way smarter to do that. The word juxtapose means this, just to put this in context. It means putting opposites next to each other to emphasize their differences. And so that's what Solomon does, right? He starts us with the most extreme, for example, in verse two, birth to the most extreme, death, right? So seven couplets, 14 juxtaposing pairs. These particular figures of speech have a word and they're called merisms, M-E-R-I-S-M. And what that means is that is a figure of speech that combines two polar opposites as a way of embracing not just the opposite of being born and the opposite of dying, but everything in between. So these two polar opposites are meaning to represent the totality of everything, okay? So when we see these words of Solomon, there's purpose in the way it's written. The key word time, it's used 28 times, okay? So have you seen, like already, just in me talking, I talk about their seven couplets, I talk about 14 juxtaposing pairs, I talk about uh, the key word used 28 times. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. There's a lot of really cool things about numbers in the Bible that they, they represent things, and, and you can see that over and over. Like, for example, seven being the number of perfect completion. Can you think of a place where we see seven show up in the Old Testament? Yeah, creation. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. So we see seven days for creation. Here's a couple others that you just, just can jot down, okay? In Joshua, when he's talking about how um, he's going to be marching around Jericho and everything, there were seven priests that blew seven trumpets, and he circled seven times, okay? Another one that you, that's just, that you might remember, Jesus, in the, in the Gospel of John, he has these I am statements where he says who he is, and do you know how many he says? Seven. Over and over in the Bible, there's, there's all kinds of sevens that appear and they all mean perfect completion. Don't think for a minute that this is a coincidence that that's the way this happens to work out. I mentioned that there's extremes. It begins with an individual, then it ends with a nation, just like it begins with death, birth and just ends with death. 
You're gonna see a lot of repeated words. You're gonna see words, one word that I thought was really interesting, you see the word and. You notice you don't see or, right? It's and, meaning every single one of these times and seasons happen to all of us. They're inevitable, these seasons and cycles. And so when we begin, we look at, okay, we observe that, right? We see that, okay, now we get into what does it actually say? So in verse one, I'm gonna reread it and we're gonna pause for a minute. We're gonna talk about it. Verse one starts like this. For everything, there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven. This poem begins with a faith statement. Here's how we know. Usually he uses the term under the sun, right? Here he talks about under heaven, there's a divine perspective that he's inviting in. Do you remember like it was chapter one or something when we were talking about how he just like never mentioned God, right? Well, in this section, we're gonna see God show up. He's gonna return to examining these life cycles just like he did in chapters one and two, but the difference is here, look for it, that there's a faith perspective, okay? He's gonna talk about the idea of of the sovereignty of God. And I know you covered that in your homework, but man, it's big. It's more than just faith, you know, it's trust. The word every we see in the first couple um, stanzas there, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. The everys and the ands, they mean something, okay? They're not accidental. He wants us to understand the totality of all of this. We all are affected by all these things whether we like it or not, right? Well, defining time. You know, I, I, I was reading one commentary and he said, you know, it's good to define the word time. And I'm like, well, guys, we know what that means, right? Don't we? We kind of know what that one means. Well, I defined it and I found this fascinating. Listen to this. I, I threw, I like crammed a bunch of de- definitions together, okay? The word time. So think about this because he's gonna say it a whole bunch of times, 28 times. A time is a point or a period when something occurs, a continued sequence of existence and events that occurs in an irreversible succession from the past through the present into the future. It's like a unit of measurement, time is, right? As I was working through this, um, I was laughing because uh, I would have brought y'all a picture, but, but I didn't, so there. But I was sitting there working in my room, and um, I have on the walls, if you've ever been to my house, I, I have like a collection of concert posters. It's kind of become my thing. I didn't really mean for that to happen. It's like I went to one concert one time, and there was like this really cool piece of art, and it like represented the night. I'm like, oh, I want that because I want to remember this night. Well, then it became kind of like this challenge. Like every time I went to a concert, I'm like, I got to get the poster. You know, I became that guy, like carrying in the tube and all that. That's me. But the thing that's cool about it is now I have them framed on my wall. I'll have to post them on the Facebook page. Um, And I'm sitting there working and I look up and I'm like, it's like those framed concert posters are like a timeline for me, you know? They're like markers. I can look up at that one and go, oh, that was in Memphis. And that was when it was, it was me and my husband and my kids. And we did this and we stayed here. And you know, you have those things in your house? Like, do you have those things where you look around and you're like, those are the markers. Those are the timelines. I thought about like photo albums, you know, in the olden days, we had like that awful, you know, crinkly see-through paper and you cram the pictures in, they all slid out all the time, you know, whatever. Nowadays, you just carry your phone around, right? And you're like, here's my photo album. But it's cool, right? Because they mark time. I thought about scars, you know, scars. Do you have a scar that tells a story? You look down at it and you can't help but feel something, right? Well, 
every single one of these things is this priceless commodity. It's this priceless currency that is time. And that's what Solomon is about to walk us through. He wants us to understand that all of it matters, but all of it is under God's control. The, uh, the couplets, the juxtaposing pairs, we're going to move through them because a lot of them, you know, seem pretty self-explanatory. But remember, what do we talk about? Like whenever we approach God's word, we want to look at who the context, right? Who wrote it, who they were writing to, what the purpose of that time. And then from that, we can look back and go, what does this mean for me? And so I wanted to, to lay a couple things out to kind of clarify some things because I know for me, I immediately start applying this to my life and it's like maybe I need to look at it a little differently and see what Solomon intended for the listeners, the readers that would actually be the original audience, okay? So let's go through it together. We're gonna start with verse two. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. Born and die, makes sense, right? Right? <laughs> Good start. I think we all understand that, but I want you to think about something a little differently. Consider this. Every human activity begins and ends with divine actions. Every human activity under the sun begins with the divine action of birth and death. And God determines both of them, doesn't he? We can try to lengthen or rush it then we can try to control it or prevent it, but ultimately God is the one who decides. God rules all of these moments for all of our days, the whole sweep of the human experience, and he lays it out in one little line. Well, going along with that couplet, the idea of being born and dying, he says there's a time for planting and plucking. Plucking, that word can mean uprooting, okay? Now, remember, the people at the time, like, this is a very agricultural um, people, okay? So, like, even their religious calendars were based on the agricultural calendar. Go, go do some light reading and skim Leviticus 23 later if you want to. <laughs> Christy will. Um, but, but you can know that. Like, these people that would be hearing this and reading this would understand that this had meaning because, see, plucking, it could mean reaping, it could mean actually harvesting, or it could mean plucking out the bad stuff, like pulling weeds, you know? It could mean that. We don't know for sure. But both are critical, and both happen in appropriate seasons, right? Well, verse 3 goes on. Verse 3 says this, that there's a time to kill and a time to heal a time to tear down and a time to build up. Okay, hold on, say what? God, God is love, what? What are we talking about? Like time to kill. I wanna, I wanna share something here. This word kill here is not referring to war or even like self-defense, okay? Or even murder necessarily. This word is probably, it's kind of vague, but it's probably more about terminating and preserving. Okay, it's probably um, in reference actually to sickness while making the point that some people die, some people are cured, some people are healed. God determines the when and the why, and he uses both. In the next part of, of verse three, we see the idea of, of the time to tear down and a time to build up. It's about construction and dismantling, you know, building something and tearing something down. This is kind of funny. And you could really go down a rabbit hole when you look at all the different smart Bible people. They have different opinions. If this means literally, because there could be some thoughts about the temple and how it was built up during Solomon's reign, right? And then it, we know it's coming down. 
Or could it be figurative? Could it be about things that we construct and about things that we dismantle? I'm not sure. Um, but that's what that section is about. It's referring to constructing and dismantling. Verse four, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. All part of the human existence, right? Right? I would guess, without having to look at your faces, that all of you, all of us, have experienced or are experiencing the range of these things, right? This one hits home, amen? I, uh, I think about it, it's, it's really easy to stand here and read it and be silly and, and funny and whatever, but, it's, but when you're living it, you know, when you're in it, in the depth of the time to cry and the time to grieve. It's, it's really, really, really hard to understand what we talked about before, the sovereignty of God, amen? I, I think about this um, in my personal life. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of ands and everies lately. It's been both of these things. You know, I, I actually was thinking about this the other day, as weird as this is, in the course of one, like, two-hour period, I was helping plan a memorial service and plan a wedding. Like, who? what is that? That is the weirdest part of life, right? Both important, both hugely impactful, both beautiful, all part of the human existence. And so I get that, right? I get that. You get that. Solomon wants us to understand that there are appropriate times for things. I think about um, a long time ago when I was 15, my dad died, and I'll never forget this. And don't, nobody, get, nobody get sideways on me on this, but this is something a 15-year-old kid noticed. Here's what I noticed. The, potentially the worst day of my life, I walk in the kitchen and a lot of great people um, were there, you know, because they loved us. And they brought a big old thing of Grandy's fried chicken. Anybody? That is heavenly. There should be a line in here about Grandy's fried chicken. It's kind of extinct now, I think. But a 15-year-old kid, you know what was hard for me? The people laughing and talking while they set up the Grandy's chicken. It was beautiful and wonderful, and it was lovely, and it was, it was appropriate. Let me be clear. It wasn't inappropriate. But for me, the 15-year-old, I couldn't figure that out. I couldn't understand it. How can you laugh about fried chicken when this is the worst day of my life, right? And so it's always reminded me, like, there's an appropriateness about things. You know, there's a sensitivity, a reading of the room. Look around, see what else is going on, right? I think that's what he's trying to say. There's a time for all these things. Well, he goes on in in verse 5, and he says this, that there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away. This particular section, if you get really geeked out in the grammar and all the stanzas of the poetry, this is actually the middle of the poem. And it's interesting because this is the only section where there are more than four word phrases, where he lengthens what he's saying. And he also repeats words. See, in verse five, he'll say stones twice. And right underneath the second part of verse five, he'll say um, Let's see, I'm sorry. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn. He talks about things over and over. It's repetitive and it's long. 
scattering, keeping, casting, gathering. I don't know what your translation might say, but there's some ideas that um, it has a couple of different meanings. It could have meant that in the terrain in this Near East where we are here, that it's very rocky and it needs to be cleared before you can plant, before anything can be like fertile. You know, you have to clear all the rocks. Some think it might even reference um, people that ruin each other's fields by throwing rocks in their fields. We don't know. But we know that Solomon is making reference to that and the people that heard it, the original listeners would understand. He talks about too that, that there's a time for gathering those stones to build. And you know what I thought about, which this is just funny. The stones are neutral, right? The stones are not the problem. It's, it's what happens to them. They're neither good nor bad. It depends on what you do with them. But Solomon's saying there's a time for both. Or some believe that he could be talking about possessions here. He could be talking about collecting and gathering. Um, think about this. Both of these words are used earlier in um, this, well, ex excuse me, scatter. The word scatter is gonna be used in verse six, but then keeping was actually used in reference to wealth in chapter two. So some people kind of go, well, maybe he's talking about, you know, gathering and keeping your stuff and scattering your stuff. We are not sure, but his point is that both occur, Right? Verse five, he continues on and he said, there's a time to embrace and a time to turn away. That's considered probably a time for hello and time for goodbye, okay? This was the culture of a lot of open shows of affection. And so that's probably what that meant. In verse six, he goes on and he says, there's a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Um, I thought of it, so there's a time to collect and there's a time to have a garage sale. That's how I thought about that. <laughs> You know, I thought, about, I thought about our first apartment when we got married and how we would go thrifting all the time and we got like this so cute little TV stand. It was just this ridiculous homemade little wooden thing and that thing stayed with me for so long and then I finally moved into a house, like a, a regular house and not our little one bedroom apartment and my husband's like, I think it's time to let go of the, of the Goodwill TV stand and I'm like, that's, that's big. You know, but that's what I think about. I think that there's times for that. There's times when you go thrifting and you buy a TV stand for, you know, $15. And then there's times when you gotta be a grown up and you gotta let it go. Verse seven, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak. There was a Jewish practice, you're probably familiar with it, of tearing your garments when you were in mourning or grief. And then there's a time for that. But then there's a time to mend. There's a time to keep living. There's a time to move on, right? Both have purpose. Both have meaning. Silence and speaking. I thought about this. You know, I, I, I thought about this. This is just a little, little bonus content because I needed this because I have a tendency to say a lot of words in case you haven't noticed. But there is a time to be quiet, Right, And I find it so interesting that Solomon includes it right here after a time to tear and a time to mend. And he's talking potentially about mourning, potentially about recovering. And he talks about a time to be quiet and a time to speak. I think about this. Um, I have learned in my old age that I used to do more of the speaking and less of the listening. And I'm really trying to flip that coin. What about you? You know, I think about, um, there's been so many times where I walk into a situation, particularly like if someone has died or someone's ill or something, it's just really heavy, hard stuff, right? And I don't want to be the person that walks in and says, I know how you feel. Because you know what? I don't. You don't. 
We may understand, we may have empathy, we may have compassion, but we don't understand. And so you know what I have learned? The best way to love people well is to just be quiet and listen. And every now and then a little hug and every now and then I'm so sorry. And every now and then just a nodding of the head because oftentimes we try to speak before we are silent. And I think Solomon's trying to give us a little hint here that there's a time for both. The best way to love friends who are suffering and mourning replace I understand and your stories with I'm here and I'm sorry and be quiet, be present. That's bonus. Solomon didn't say that. Chris said that. You can jot that down. Well, verse eight, the last little part of our poem, he goes into saying this. Um, There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There are some things that we are to hate as believers. There are. In the Bible, there there are lists of things that God hates. And we need to hate them too. In Psalm 97, 10, God hates evil. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, there's a list of six things that God hates. Revelation 2, verse 6, and then 15, it says he hates sin. And go on and on. And so don't shy away from that. I mean, Solomon's very clear. There is a time for that. There's a time for love. And then he finishes with um, the idea that there's a time for war and peace. He has nations in mind. These are broad strokes. Remember when he's talking? We think he's talking to future generations. So he starts out with this really personal thing. You were born, you're gonna die, right? And then he ends with this big, giant communal thing about nations and war. Well, he goes on, and I'm gonna go fast because, yeah, I'm gonna go fast. Verses nine through 15, here's what he does now, okay? He's done the poem, and so what he's gonna do is he's gonna reflect on the poem, okay? This is where he's gonna bring God into this bleak picture. I mean, we could end the little poem and be kind of sad, like, oh, there's a time for all those things. Well, that's a downer, right? However, there's more that we need to understand, and Solomon makes it clear here. Verse nine, um, I'm gonna start with verse nine. It says, what do people really get with all their hard work? In other words, he's saying, okay, these two extreme things, these juxtaposing things, they cancel each other out, amen? So it's like we're back at zero. I think about the question, do you remember back in chapter one, verse three, remember Solomon poses a question before he ever brought God into the picture. He said this, he said, what does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's repeating the same question, but now he's gonna look at it differently because he's bringing God into the picture, okay? So watch for it. Verses 10 through 11, he says this, I've seen the burden God has placed on us all. Yet, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. I love this. You know why? Life is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. Solomon's telling us that. He's saying it's a gift from God. And then the other thing he tells us about life here is that it is, a, it is linked to eternity. This life is linked to eternity. It's in us. Isn't it interesting? God built in dissatisfaction into the human heart. It says so right there. This God's word is true. He builds in dissatisfaction because we need the gift of longing for more. Because if we didn't, we could end the book right here because Solomon did all the things, right? But he's telling us there's more. Which brings us back to faith and trust. 
verses 12 through 15. I'm gonna read it in the New Living because here's, here's what I love about the ESV. The ESV, just a little side note, that is a word-for-word translation, okay? Very accurate in my opinion. I think I, it's my favorite translation. However, sometimes a phrase-for-phrase phrase or a thought-for-thought thought helps us understand things. So I use different translations or different paraphrases sometimes when things don't flow. Does that make sense? And so this little section, I just thought it was better in the New Living Translation. So just listen to this, okay? 12 through 15. So I concluded, there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor for these are gifts from God. Verse 14, and I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. Verse 15, what is happening now has happened before and what will happen in the future has happened before because God makes the same things happen over and over. We've heard that, right? But here's what's interesting is Solomon wants us to know this. We can enjoy life now. We can't enjoy life now. I think sometimes as believers, um, you know what we do? We, 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 we turn into these people that think you can't have fun and you can't laugh and you can't enjoy the gifts of life because we think somehow that's insulting to God. Well, I wanna challenge your thinking. God gave us all those things. Those are gifts from him. If we appreciate them and give him the glory, Right? I, this term, and I did talk about it in the teaching from last week, so if you haven't watched it, I'm kind of repeating something, but I thought it, it bears repeating, okay? John Piper had, has, um, last week we talked about hedonism, right? Because remember, he, he, we know that Solomon gulped it and he snorted it and he did all things, right? Well, John Piper coined this term that I thought was really kind of cool. He called it Christian hedonism, the idea of enjoying and acknowledging God's gifts, like not just like enjoying and acknowledging the gifts, but enjoying and acknowledging that they come from God. It goes like this. Christian hedonism is this. True pleasure is attainable, but it's found only through God. Okay, so hang with me a second. Listen to this. John Piper points out that pleasure per se is not anti-God. That's where a lot of us get messed up. Sometimes we think that pleasure is not good. Pleasure's great. Pleasure in one sense is a gauge of how much importance we place on what we value. Piper coined the term Christian hedonism by basically saying this truth. God is not glorified in us as he ought to be when he is not our greatest joy. So hear that. The point of the whole Christian hedonism idea is that he is your greatest joy. Those other gifts are like gravy. The underlying truth of hedonism is that, of, of Christian hedonism is the idea that God has designed each of us with an innate desire to pursue happiness. The problem is not that we seek pleasure. The problem is that we seek pleasure apart from God. Are you seeking pleasure apart from him? That's what Solomon's point here is, Right? Well, before we leave, I just feel like there's a couple things we can learn from this, right? Other than the obvious of like how interesting it is and how true it is, all these seasons, all these everys and ands happen to all of us. But I felt like there was three things I wanted, I wanted to walk away with from this. And I hope that you hear this from a spirit of, um, I think that we can gain this by understanding what Solomon's trying to teach us, three things. First is this, life is a gift from God. 
Enjoy it and thank him for it. Enjoy him and thank him for it. I had a friend a long time ago. She had her mother-in-law um, was, was, there would be like a big family gathering. And, and for some reason, for some reason, she, great believer, amazing woman, took great comfort in standing in the kitchen and stirring the pot of beans. And my friend and I would always laugh because she'd be like, oh, everyone's out there having fun. I'm stirring the beans, you know, I'm in here. And we were like, nobody asked you to make the beans. You know, what are you doing? And so it kind of became our thing. It's like whenever we started hosting people or having people around us, we'd like, don't be the person in the kitchen stirring beans. Go enjoy, right? Be with people, look them in the face, right? Life is short. We gotta be better, I think about when I um, became a Christian, I, I didn't like look at the Bible and think, oh, it's so brilliant and I want to, had all these great theological questions and all these, you know what I wanted? You know what I wanted? This was the secret to me becoming, my eternity being different because now I get to be with Jesus. Here's the secret. I saw some cool people and I wanted to be like them. I had young life leaders hanging around with me and, and, and they were hanging around with me and they would look me in the eye and they would listen to me and they would talk to me about this guy, Jesus. And I watched the way they live life, not just what they said, but how they did it. And I wanted it. I wanted to be in that club, right? Nobody wants to be in the bean stirring club, amen? So we, we look at life like a gift and we enjoy it and we thank him for it and we draw people into him because they see that it's fun, Second thing, God is trustworthy. It's hard to say that after you read these seasons. Some of them are really awful and we do not want to be there, right? I'll say, I'll say this. I, I read this recently and I thought this was fascinating. I'm reading a book right now called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. It's by Tyler Stanton and he said this and I thought, wow, this like stuck out for me. He said, faith is assurance of what we hope for. That comes straight from God's word. But trust is confidence in the character of God. Faith is assurance of what we hope for, but, but trust is the confidence in the character of God. Trust allows us to say, I don't understand what God is doing right now, but I trust that he is good, right? Philippians 4, verses 5 through 7, I find it interesting that we, we talk about the word every and we talk about the word and. And in this particular verse, it goes like this. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Every single one, every single season, every single couplet, every single juxtaposing pair. The Lord is near. Even when you can't see him, even when you can't see his reasons, you can't see his, hand, his hands and you can't see his plans, right? The third thing and the last thing that I wanna leave us with today that I think Solomon, we can gather from all of this, right? Is that we need to get to know God. We need to get to know God. Remember when we began this thing, we read chapter 12. Remember we started with the end. In chapter 12, verse 13, there were two things that he said we needed to do. We need to fear God and we need to do what he says, right? And so I will tell you this, how, where do you start? How do you get to know him? You know, one, you're doing right now. You're opening his word because it is all about him. We're in there sometimes, but it's about him. 
And how do you get to know somebody that you're in a relationship with? You, you listen and you, you understand and you try and you spend time, right? And that's what we're doing. I think about um, uh, Psalm 1, one of my very favorite Psalms, talks about how we meditate and delight in his word. We don't just read it and we don't just like memorize it like a history book. We meditate and we delight. There's been so many times in Ecclesiastes where I'll hear some, a time to be born, a time to die, and I'll be driving around, time to born, time to die, time to born. You know, you're just thinking about it. God, what are you trying to tell me right now? Meditate and delight. C.S. Lewis said this, we come to scripture not to learn a subject, but to steep ourselves in a person. That's why we do this. That's why we're doing this is to get to know him. When you get to know him, you meditate, delight in his word. And the last thing that I want you to know is when you're getting to know him, you pray as you can. You know what that means to me? It means just start where you are. I love that our church is so focused on prayer right now because I need it. Anyone need it? Amen. I need it. I'll, I want to encourage you. Like I, I, you hear me pray. It's, it's kind of like a fifth grader, but here's what I think. Here's what I think. I think God loves it because he doesn't need big words. Sometimes he just needs like two words or one. How about this one? This is the greatest prayer. Help. Right? Thank you. Do it again. <laughs> right? Those are great prayers. He loves that. And if you don't have the words, not even like one or two words, you know where you can go? Go to the Psalms because those are prayers by God's people and you will read them and those words will become yours and they're beautiful and they're painful and they don't always work out. Amen. Just like our prayers. And you know what else? I'll tell you this. Sometimes for me, if I can't get focused and I can't really pray, I'll write it. I'll journal it. I'll write it as I pray because I stay more focused and less focused on my target list. Or I do it when I'm vacuuming. Because I'm really like, this is, I can talk to God when I'm doing, you know, there's just things. You just got to ask yourself, how can I get to know him better? Listen, I don't know what that looks like for you. I have no idea where you are, but I, I do believe that we can learn from this Old Testament poetry, right? That there's a God who loves us enough to give us a beautiful life, even though it's laced with all sorts of a time to this and a time to that. It's beautiful and it's a gift and he wants us to enjoy it and he wants us to know him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the beauty of this poetry. I thank you that we can read it and we can look at it and we can see all these words and all these facts and all these things. But at the end of the day, you want to prick our hearts and you want us to know you. And I pray, God, that through this, through your word, that we do. I want to know you in a different way. I want to know you deeper. I want to know you closer. I want to speak to you like I speak to my very closest fans, friends and family and God, I want to listen well. And so I pray that you show us how to do all of these things. And we thank you for Solomon. We thank you for his crazy life. And we thank you for the reflection that he is sharing with us. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. And guess what? There's candy. I knew this was going to be heavy. So I was like, I got to get him some sugar. So on your way out, which go, go with... Go briskly and quickly because I talked way too long. But anyway, there's candy. Amy has candy. So stick your hand in there and grab some sugar. Stay awake and enjoy your conversation with your people, okay? Thanks for staying awake for me. <laughs>